0: Contrary to the misperception that a lot of people have about the Black Panther Party, is that we were not a racist organization.
1: The Black Panther Party was founded 50 years ago.
0: Our philosophy was really, if you break it down and look at it, was a multicultural philosophy.
1: The party's message of empowerment and liberation inspired Elmer Dixon, his older brother Aaron, and others to create a Seattle chapter.
0: We just did it in a more of an outspoken, more defiant, revolutionary way.
1: I'm Enrique Cerna. Coming up, the first of a two-part talk with Elmer Dixon, co-founder of Seattle's Black Panther Party, about its impact in the community, its defiance of authority, and how it changed lives. This is Conversations. Elmer Dixon, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, how did a nice kid who was growing up in Madrona uh, become a founding member of the city's Black Panther Party?
0: You, you know, Enrique, that's an that's a interesting question. And I, I, I guess I would agree that I was a good kid, you know, I wasn't a bad kid, you know, I got into the usual stuff as did me and my brothers and, and several of our friends. But, you know, we were growing up in the middle of the 60s. Of course, in the early 60s, you know, it was the the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Motown, and James Brown. You know, we had marched with King in 61 or 62. I can't remember the exact year that he was here. Maybe it was 63, even. Our parents had exposed us to that. But by the time I was getting into high school, the black is proud movement began and I was getting some influence of that and it wasn't until Stokely Carmichael came that I really began to think more deeply about things that I had seen both on TV and, and even in our own neighborhood in Madrona that my consciousness then was sparked but you know Enrique the, the fascinating thing is is that contrary to the misperception that a lot of people have about the Black Panther Party is that we were not a racist organization. In fact, we had built effective coalitions across all of these populations that I had met before. In fact, our our philosophy was really, if you break it down and look at it, was a multicultural philosophy. So the transition from one to the other really was a natural transition for me. We just did it in a more of an outspoken, more defiant, revolutionary way.
1: Now- Your brother, Aaron, was also a part of this. You became a part of this. Larry Gossett, now King County Council member, but back then, uh, you guys had created an organization called Black Student Union. Actually, you were still in high school at this point, I was still in
0: high school. Larry was at the University of Washington and had started the BSU there. My brother, Aaron, was at the UW in 1967. And that was the year earlier that spring, Stokely Carmichael had came and fired us all up. And so I became a member of SNCC, which was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That That was the organization that he was running at the time. And by the time I got into the fall of my senior year, I, along with Anthony Ware, uh, uh, his mother, Flo Ware, was a popular figure, worked with Congressman Lowry for years. Anthony Ware, who was one of also the founding members who was in that picture there on the Capitol steps. Anthony and several of us at Garfield We wanted to start a black student union and we had to go through several challenges at Garfield to make that happen. But we were actually the first high school black student union on the west coast. So I was the president of the the black student union before I was a Panther.
1: Now, let's move up here. So you're, you're involved in the black student union. You're still a high school student at Garfield High School. Comes along in April of 1968. You had already been arrested along with Larry and Aaron, your brother, uh, for some actions that you had taken place. Yeah,
0: it was the sit-in, the takeover of Franklin High School so that they could get a BSU. Right. At the behest of some brothers and sisters at Franklin that were being mistreated in a variety of ways and asking us to help them organize a BSU. So we ended up taking over and Larry uh, and Aaron and Carl Miller and E.J. Brisker ended up coming from the UW and we all went over, it, went in and took over the, the principal's office and occupied it overnight. And the next morning when the phone rang and we answered the phone as if we were you know, running the school, the principal capitulated and said, you can have a BSU, just get out of my office. <laughs> and so we, we, we left. They didn't take us out of there. It was about a week later. I was in my geometry class at Garfield, Mr. Narramore's class. I remember the event very clearly. And the phone rang, and Mr. Nairmore said they want you in the office, which wasn't unusual back then. I was always in for something as I was organizing in the school. And when I stepped out of the classroom, there was a, two detectives. There were two detectives there who arrested me, put me in handcuffs, and took me to juvenile. And at the same time, almost simultaneously, they were picking up Larry, Aaron, E.J., one of the brothers from Franklin, and. You know, Enrique, I haven't looked at the actual timing. I've tried to figure it out. Martin Luther King was assassinated within the hour of our arrest. And it was almost as if they were getting us off the street as the leaders, quote unquote, who might fire up groups in the streets, as which was happening across the country. So I was in juvie watching the rest of the country burn in an uproar, and, and remembering James Brown coming on, and coming on a stage somewhere, asking people not to burn their communities. And there was this uproar over the, the assassination of King. And when our, my parents came and got me out of juvenile, you know, they were very somber. And the only thing they said to me was, are you all right? And as I responded, I'm fine, it was as if they knew because both of their older sons, my younger brother Michael was not even in high school yet, or maybe he was just starting high school, was 15 or 16 years old. And they knew that their two older sons were about to be in something. And they were distraught of course over the murder, the assassination of King. And so it was a week later that we traveled to the Bay Area to attend the West Coast Conference of Black Student Unions at San Francisco State University and Bobby Seale was there speaking.
1: One of the founders of the Black Panther. One
0: of the founders of the Black Panther Party along with Huey Newton and was speaking there about the murder of the first member to join the Black Panther Party, little Bobby Hutton. 17 years old. 17 years old who was shot 30 times by police in Oakland, the streets of Oakland. His body was hit by 30 bullets. And his funeral was the next day. He was actually murdered 2 days before king was and his funeral funeral was the next day so when we attended this funeral we committed several of us to, come, to attending this funeral it was a uh, the the, the site was 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 an awe inspiring sight for me to see these large this large number pop you know black people everywhere in leather jackets and berets that looked to me like a, it was it looked like a black army. I remember that 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 very feeling, and I remember seeing little Bobby in his coffin and you know draped in a panther flag and with his beret and leather jacket on and, and thinking you know I was seventeen at the same time thinking that could be me laying there and that was when I personally you know said this is it and all of us said you know this is it and uh, all of us in a small group of us uh, and we met with Bobby Seale and he told us that uh, to go back to Seattle. And within two weeks, he would be there, which he was. And we became the first chapter organized out of the state of California.
1: When you got started with the Black Panther Party here in Seattle, did you feel a sense of militancy at that point?
0: Militancy almost assumes that people become kind of this militant person that has no Objective or no perspective, it just wants to be angry and you know hold a gun and and say, okay, we're going to kill police or whatever. You know, that that's kind of the connotation that militancy has. And we were um, the feeling that that we had was that not militancy, but that that we were revolutionaries, that we were part of a revolutionary struggle. We were part of a revolutionary army that was going to take back. Um, uh, control of the black community and change the dynamics in the black community to end, um, you know, this the effects of of racism of 200 years of, of oppression, and we had to read uh, two hours a day, study two hours a day theories of, of, of revolutionary organization organizing. We read Mao Zedong, we read France Fanon, we read Wretched of the Earth, we read um, all of these, uh, these, these theoreticians and practitioners who had started revolutions in the past. And w- we had a 10-point platform and program. We were very organized in terms of our thought process and how we were gonna go about instigating revolution. And we saw, It necessary to overthrow the US government. And so we had become an army. We had become an organization that was going to organize this broad-based movement not only within the black community but in other oppressed communities, which was this multicultural approach that I mentioned earlier. So that was the feeling that I had. It was like I never thought and I know Aaron had the same feeling and I know you know most of us had the same feeling that we would live past you know 22 or 23 years old uh, you know seeing little Bobby Hutton in his coffin at at 17 years old and I was 17 at the same time I mean it was it was not like this this uh Idealistic view of you know living you know to see the the fruits of our labor. We knew we were in for a long struggle, and many of us would die along the way. You were willing, and die. we were willing to die. And so it was uh, it was more than just this militancy. You know when you see uh, you know, images of the uh, the some of the students at Cornell or one of these universities that that took some guns and took over the you know the occupied a building for a couple of days, and then they. They kind of disappeared, you didn't hear from them again. It wasn't that instant that momentary instance of militancy. It was a commitment to to the death to to change the conditions within our community.
1: But you guys had weapons yes, and, and sometimes you were you' were probably better armed than the local police mm-hmm. in some cases. why
0: well, you know number one, we believed strongly that As we had observed, the demonstrations of the Civil Rights Movement taught us something. That when you go out and ask for what we perceive and know as our God-given rights, that the powers that be aren't going to let go of those things easily. And in fact, those demonstrators in case after case after case, as I saw them growing up, were being beaten, were being shot were being hosed by firefighters, bitten by police dogs, attacked by racists, shot in, the, in, in back alleys, lynched. And in the rebellions of the mid-60s in Watts and in Detroit, when people just kind of spontaneously rebelled, they also were, were brutalized. And so we were going to demand our rights, not ask for them, but demand them in in a different fashion. And the Constitution of the United States and the Second Amendment guarantees the right to own and bear arms. And when the party organized, it was initially called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. We weren't the aggressors, so to speak. We were defending ourselves against violence. See, when we looked into black communities across the country and we saw starving kids, babies going to school, young kids going to school without a hot meal to to learn an education that really didn't even uplift them, when we saw young mothers who were pregnant who couldn't get prenatal care and were at the highest risk of infant mortality, right in King County, when we looked at those things, you know, we saw those things as violent. And so we were going to take control of our destiny and implement programs that we ended up calling Survival Programs Pending Revolution. But the guns were meant to send the message that we needed to be prepared to defend ourselves. Did you use the guns at all? The guns were were largely, as I said, meant to stand as a symbol of defense. And certainly there were uh, spontaneous acts that were carried out by members of the party and other people. You know, Seattle had the second highest sniping rate in the country in 1968 and 69. These were probably many of them not Black Panthers, who were angry at police or angry at some situation, who were firing back. And you look across the country, those same things were happening. And I, I don't say that that was, you know, necessarily the right thing to do. But, but weapons were used in that way. But that's not what we organized and, and, and had our weapons for. We had our weapons for a defensive posture and to show uh, you know, when we used to drill through the community, we used to march from uh, Madrona Park down to Garfield High School in formation with, with 400 Panthers to show that we were an organized body, an organized group, and that if you came into our community and tried to brutalize us, we were going to defend ourselves. In fact, one of the very first programs that we had, Enrique, you talk about did we use our guns. We used our guns when we had police alert patrols. And the police alert patrol was when we would load up a car with six Panthers deep armed to the teeth and then uh, when we saw police car patrolling in the neighborhood then we would go follow them and follow them to make sure that they were not brutalizing someone or 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 kill an innocent person and you know they didn't like that and and that set the tone for you know this you know we're not going to let you beat us we're not going to let you shoot us we're not going to let you kill us in our community And the powers that be didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that we would dare to stand up against, you know, cops who were racist. I don't believe all cops are racist, never did believe that. But there are some who are. And we weren't going to let them murder innocent black people in our neighborhood. And because we took that defensive posture, then we were labeled as, you know, the terrorist or the the anti-government or whatever labels they put on us.
1: And that brings us to the end of part one of our talk with Elmer Dixon, co-founder of Seattle's Black Panther Party. Join us for part two as we find out about the Panthers' community efforts in Seattle to aid children and families in the black community here, showdowns with authorities, the party's eventual demise, and what former Panthers think of today's Black Lives Matter movement. This is Conversations. I'm Enrique Serda, and
0: we'll talk more next time.